Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Teferit Talk. I'm Melissa Stuttered, and this is the Blog Talk Radio show for Teferit, a journal of spiritual literature, where our goal is to promote peace in the individual and in the world through writing. We're so happy that you've joined us tonight, and we invite you to also join our online global writing community at www.teferitjournal.com. There you can interact with other members, read their writings, post your own writings, and subscribe to Teferit Journal. Our interview tonight is with writer, yoga instructor, and psychologist Judith Hansen Lassiter. We'll be talking about how to live your yoga and other vital topics. Lassiter is the president of the California Yoga Teachers Association and a founder of both the Iyengar Yoga Institute in San Francisco and Yoga Journal Magazine. As well, Lassiter is the author of many, many books, including What We Say Matters with Ike Lassiter, Living Your Yoga, A Year of Living Your Yoga, and Relax and Renew, Restful Yoga for Stressful Times. In praise of Lassiter, Patricia Walden states, Judith Lassiter presents timeless wisdom with clarity and insight. She is a well-seasoned yogini who writes from personal experience on how to use the events of daily life as yoga poses for the mind and heart. Hi, Judith. How are you doing this evening? Thank you so much for having me. I hope you're well also. Oh, yes, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show, and I'm happy Thank to learn you. that you're right here in Texas with me. <laughs> yes. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and ask you kind of a general question to start with because you have so many books. Um, I'm wondering if someone had never read anything by you at all and they wanted to get started, which book would you recommend that they begin with? I think I would recommend Living Your Yoga because it takes different aspects of your inner life, your life in familial relationships, and then your life in the larger world situation. It takes uh, The chapters are, like there's a chapter on truth and fear and love and faith and different aspects of our life and uh, how we can pay attention to those and integrate them. And it's so it's a book that's readable by people who are students of yoga, but also I've heard from many people that they've given it to a cousin or a friend or a mother who uh, doesn't do yoga, but they they like it. So we take principle from the Bhagavad Gita, the ancient text or the Yoga Sutra, and then I try to make it very real. Uh, I tell stories from my life, and I'd like to tell you one of them. And uh, now, Probably if fine. I may briefly. Um, yes, so okay. I, I had three children, and I tried to raise them eating pretty healthily, which is quite a magnum opus job in this fast food society. Um, so I didn't give them a lot of sweets, and so I would go Wednesday night to teach my classes, and they had a babysitter on Wednesday night. So one day I bought them an apple pie you know, a pretty healthy one from the healthy store. And I told the babysitter, this is a treat, you know, and they can have apple pie uh, after dinner. And so I came back, they were all in bed, and she said, I said, how did it go? And she said, not well. They got in a big fight over whose piece was the biggest. It was a real fight. And so the next week I went out 
for Wednesday, and I bought three apple pies. And she, of course, was astounded uh, when she saw them. And I said, I want each of them to make these pies and eat, you know, warm them up. And each kid gets their own pie. And she said, what? Because they were fairly small, you know, six, eight, and ten or something. And I said, it's really important to me that my children learn that they could start eating apple pie right now and eat it 24 hours a day for the rest of their life and it'd still be apple pie. Because greed, is, because greed is about fear of having not having enough, and when we live with greed, when we live with greed, we fear we don't have enough time, we don't have enough money, we don't have enough love, then we do things that we we regret. And so I wanted my children to see that they couldn't possibly eat a whole pie, and and not to be so caught up in it's not enough for me. Now there may be an allocation problem with food let me be quick to say, in the world. But I don't think there's a, a quantity problem. I think it's an allocation problem. Hmm. So that's hmm. the kind of stories I have in them. And I talk a lot about what greed, greed is and how the sutras talk about greed and practices that you can, little mantras and things you can say to yourself or practices you can take up uh, to notice your own greed and, hmm. and that it's from fear and what you're afraid of. So it's a pretty interesting well, book, I think. <laughs> it is, and I love the unconventional parenting stories. <laughs> There's a lot of those. Uh, I know. Also, um, I loved the story about your daughter um, standing by the tree and, and then following the boys and using the rope to jump into the river, and then what she said when you asked her um, how she had the courage to do that. Well, she's actually jumping off a big rock into a lagoon. Oh, my gosh, that's even scarier. <laughs> I know. Well, it, it's it, I'm a physical therapist, and we're very tuned into diving accidents. But it's a place that had been checked many times underwater, and it was fine. So that wasn't the issue. She said uh, to me, when I asked her where she got the courage to do it, she said, I have a girl's courage. And I said, what's that? And she said, brave and not foolish. And I think she <laughs> said that in that way because she had seen her brothers, and this is not something that's exclusive of the male gender, she'd seen her brothers do things which were, she thought stupid or foolish <laughs> just to appear brave. And so that's the that's the courage chapter, and I talk about how courage can be a very quiet, inward thing that we don't even see in people's lives because they're taking care of a uh, a child with disabilities or a parent or they're they're helping someone uh, who doesn't show up in their outer life, and it takes a lot of courage to do that. So it's just a chapter on courage and and what is real courage. Great, great. And while we're on the topic of living your yoga, can you tell us what it means in kind of a general sense to live your yoga? I mean, I know we're, we're talking about courage, but what are some of the other things? Well, when I discovered yoga or yoga found me, or some combo, It the first practices I learned were asana, pranayama, and meditation, uh, things that you could do with your body. And this was this was a way many people find yoga in the West. Uh, in fact, most people think asana and yoga is the same thing. So, and I began to notice and had the thought fairly soon afterwards when I faced some difficulties, well, what if I just thought about this as an asana? And how do I approach a difficult asana? 
I take a breath, you know, I pay attention. Uh, I try to be present with what I'm feeling. I try to notice my limitations and whether those are are are, are true limitations because we all have them. Or are they, is it just my fear, my thoughts, and my self-perception? So it, I begin fairly early on to take the lessons of asana. For example, every day you practice a little bit and you and you go step by step, and you and you learn more about your body and your strengths and your weaknesses, and you become honed by not doing it all at once. And so mm-hmm. that spilled over into my life of other things. I begin to see that I don't have to finish everything right now on my list. I can do consistent because I think that discipline, which is one of the chapters in the book. Discipline has to do with consistency, not effort. You know, it's really, really hard to be consistent every single day. I mean, people say, oh, well, I brush my teeth every single night. No, you don't, because I know every (laughs) once in a while you're in bed and you're thinking, oh, my God, my dentist, I know he can see that I didn't floss. I should get up and floss. Like, every once in a while we miss. So it's a consistency of, of practice. And I learned that through my consistent yoga practice. And for this is an example, and this is what sort of spread out in many other ways of my life when I would write books. I would have uh, a three-hour time. I was raising kids and, you know, teaching, traveling. And I'd have uh, a three-hour time slot on Tuesdays, and I'd work on my book. And sometimes I would just reread and edit, and sometimes I would look up quotes, and sometimes I would write original material. But I just spent that time on the book, whatever it was. And some of it was details, and some of it would I get a chapter done, or whatever would happen. And that, uh, if I could just add one more point about that, you know, the mat has a boundary, the yoga class starts and ends, the pose starts and ends. So there's that is a very powerful metaphor. So I would work from 1 to 4, let's say, and even if it was going very, very, very well at 4 o'clock, I would still stop. Because I didn't want to train my mind that if I got myself to sit down to work on a book, that I would get swallowed up by it. So I created a boundary. I just do the three hours, and that would satisfy me, and that would be good, and I just did it consistently, and it's shocking what you can accomplish in a year of doing that. Wow. And or half a year that's, of doing that. Yeah, that's an interesting point because I know that is a fear that a lot of people have of writing, that when they sit down to write, it, they just they get pulled into this other world, you know? But, um, you know, so. I use this too. I use this often, like there's tasks that I don't like, like cleaning out the linen closet or the garage or something. And I've done this wonderful thing of 10 minutes. Like, okay, I'm going to do 10 minutes. And I set a time, my iPhone or a timer or something. And I go for 10 minutes, I work on the linen closet. Or I go in the garage and I clean for 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then I leave. And, it, you know, <laughs> you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you'd be amazed what you can do in 10 minutes if you just do it regularly. <laughs> Well, do you find that now that you're structuring things that way, you're actually wasting less time? I have a, I have a saying about wasted time. The, there is no such thing as wasted time. The only wasted time is any time that I spend not being present. Mm. Okay, I so love that. <laughs> I'm sitting in traffic. I could be wasting time mm-hmm. or I could not. I could be looking at the wildflowers. 
on the mm-hmm. side of the road. I could be listening to a beautiful song. I could be looking at the sky. I could be feeling my breath. I could be being grateful for being alive. I mean, it's all in perspective. If we're not present, we're wasting time. It doesn't matter what the outer activity looks looks like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's actually kind of what I was asking is I know sometimes, for me anyway, I will kind of be working on a task and then I'll realize that my mind has gone elsewhere. You know, like when you're reading and you get to the bottom of the page and you realize you haven't read it, you know. Does that ever happen to you? Oh, yes. <laughs> so I, I'm kind of asking because you're keeping track of your time, do you find that you do that sort of thing less often because you know you only have a limited amount of time to work on whatever it is you're doing? No, I'm not that organized. And I don't do the 10-minute thing. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't keep track of my time like lawyers do of every 15-minute segment or anything like that. I'm not that. I could never do that. Uh, but I use that tool of selective focus, especially when there's something I really am loath to do. And then... I find I get shifted because I have a, then I have a sense of accomplishment. Right. But I don't do it all the time. Okay. Well, I would love to talk a little bit about your book, What We Say Matters. And um, I know it's established on the foundation of Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication teachings. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I've studied with Marshall a number of times. Um, Marshall's work is uh, fascinating to say the least and it's very much empathy based and it's it's empathy based for yourself first and what I find in this work is that one of the most profound things it has taught me has to do with viewing the world from an ego perspective. So in yoga practice, and I mean the wider practices of yoga, uh, one of the things we want to learn is to see things not from an ego perspective. In fact, you might say that's enlightenment. Uh, We we don't just see things from our point of view. And uh, we we, we bring an attention to our movements, our breath, to an attention to watching the mind. So Nonviolent communication to me is a yoga of speech. It's a way of bringing attention to the language that I am choosing at any given moment. For example, um, I believe that my words reflect my thoughts, and my thoughts reflect my beliefs, and my beliefs run my life, especially the unexamined ones. So the way I say something makes a huge difference. I'm getting to the ego part in a second. Mm-hmm. So, so for example, how many times have you said, I've said, we all say, oh, there's not enough time. There's not enough time. I'm late. There's not enough time. Well, I'm, I guarantee you if, you, if I say there's not enough time, I feel anxious just by saying that phrase. Mm. Uh, and I don't like that. So I, I try to say, Oh, there's apparently not as much time as I, I'm not as I, as I'm going to actually need to get to the meeting on time, and that's just a statement of fact. 
There's mm-hmm. not enough time for me. There is, there is, apparently, I did not leave as much time as I'm going to need to get there by 3 o'clock. Now, that's a huge shift because that takes the anxiety and the blame out of it. Mm-hmm. So we think communication is about what we say, but it's really about what the other person hears. And that's where the ego thing when someone opens their mouth and speaks, they are they are trying to get a need met, some kind of need. And that has nothing to do with me. Now, this is an interesting example. So when I was driving a few years ago and I stopped and I went, my car went, stopped a little abruptly, and my car went, you know, six, eight inches into the crosswalk. In California, it's very strict crosswalk laws. Pedestrians have the right of way 100% of the time, no matter what the signal is, no matter what. So I went I went by mistake. I went in a little far, and a man was walking by, and he took a fist, and he hit it on the hood of my car. Because learn oh how to God. drive, you idiot. Learn how to drive. I didn't hit him, but he said, learn how to drive, you idiot, and he walked off. All right, so the two common responses to that are just are to say, well, you should be, you know, in your mind, you, well, to, to him in your mind, you would say, well, you should just be paying more attention. Or, which is more common for me, maybe it's gender and personality or combination. I was raised in Texas. Think, think a woman <laughs> in Texas and a Christian, I mean, it's always my fault. So <laughs> I... Uh, I would say to myself, oh, my God, that was so awful. How could I do that? So those two, that continuum is either violence to him or violence to me. But with with this training that, I, that I, I, I'm hopefully integrating more and more is I now listen to his words with my heart. And when mm-hmm. he hit the car and said, learn how to drive, you're an idiot, what I heard was, hey, I was so afraid you were going to hit me. Mm-hmm. And and I when I say it, when I hear it, when I choose to hear it that way, I like how I feel and I like how I act. And I see that how human of me to go a little bit into the crosswalk, how human of him to be afraid. And then compa- there's now a space for compassion to arise. That's wonderful. So really what you're doing is you're you're hearing what's behind the words is Needs emotion. Yes. Mm, that's wonderful. Yes. I have another you know, story about that. If you, you want to hear another story about that, sure, absolutely. This was when my daughter was in seventh grade, which is you know, annulus horribilis for girls. Uh, that's when girls hate their mothers the most when they're in seventh Aww. grade. So, mom, <laughs> mom, yeah, mom, pick me up. Would you pick me up after school? I can't get the bus because I have play practice. Can you pick me up at you know five o'clock? And she said, and mom. Don't wear that blouse, and don't talk to my friends, and don't look at anybody. <laughs> don't play that classical radio station, and you know. <laughs> and, and so, and don't, and don't, don't be annoying. And just, you know. And so, I could have heard that and been hurt, right? But I translate. Have been in that same situation when I was a thirteen-year-old. But I, I translated it with my heart, and I. And I translated it into this. Mom, I want you to know how insecure 
and tender I am around my friends. And I'm so afraid that they're going to find some reason to ostracize me or reject me or tease me. And so I really want your help in not giving them any ammunition to do that because it's sometimes hard to be 13. Wow. <laughs> Doesn't and that then, sound so better? <laughs> well, it's just, it's probably closer to the truth. And so, and so being able to see and hear and sense and understand someone else's words, not from your own ego point of view, but also include a mutuality of what it is they might be feeling and really asking for. Mm, and when we I can learn it. to, it's expansive and we don't mm. get our feelings hurt and we don't argue about the wrong things. Mm. Uh, you know, another aspect I, I really like about the nonviolent communication that you talk about and what we say matters is um, the training wheel sentence and um, the way it helps you to identify what your needs are and what you're, what you're actually trying to say because... I've been practicing it a little bit, and I've found that a lot of times it's really better for me just not to say anything because I'm really not quite sure yet what my needs are and what it is I really want to say. And um, I was wondering if you could talk about that training wheel sentence a little bit and how that works. I'm happy to do that, but I'm really happy to use an example from you if you have something, for example, a situation, and then I could talk coach you about it a little bit or talk to you about it a little bit that might make it more real for you if you'd rather not do that. I'm really happy <laughs> to be more general. Well, um hmm. to you. I don't yeah, I don't think I have an example just right off the cuff, but maybe you have one from, from your huh. book that would work. All right. So I'm I'm a little bit hesitant to give this uh, these uh training wheels practice, but I will because if you get you can become rigidly adhering to it and that misses the whole point because the whole point of nonviolent communication is an empathetic connection with yourself and others and that doesn't mm-hmm. always take a, a rigid form but uh, the first thing is to observe what you know you say this so someone comes in you come you come home your kid has let's say your kid has said you're going out and the kid's supposed to clean up the kitchen and that's your agreement all right we we won't go into what cleaning up means because you know that to some people cleaning up to other people is not cleaning up. You know, like I have very high standards for cleaning up. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so, but other people, oh, well, the dishes are done, but there's still, the chairs are all pulled out. There's a bunch of stuff on the thing and all that. No. So, so you come back, you have an agreement with your teenager to wash the dish. How's this for an example? This will do, right? This will do for you, right? right? Yeah, okay. this is great. So Thank you. you come back and you see that it hasn't been done or it hasn't been done in the way you thought the agreement was. So you could you could walk in and say, I had told you so many times what I wanted in this kitchen and you said you were going to do it and you didn't. And I just I'm just so upset about it and just I just think you're grounded for the weekend or whatever. Uh so or you could come in and you could you could say if you were following us strictly. Uh, when I come home and I see two large dirty pots and this dishes, dirty dishes in the sink, and orange juice spilled on the floor, 
the kitchen floor. So those are observations of things. They're not opinions. Right. right. Like you, you, an opinion would be this kitchen is a mess. What does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. But orange juice on the floor, dishes in the sink, and three dirty pots on the stove, we can all agree on. In consensus reality, we can agree on that. When I see those things, I feel irritated because I have a need for order and I have a need for to mutuality. I like to be in relationship with people who live up to to what they say they're going to do and, and, and I have a need for respect of the family and that we all contribute to the family. So I'm wondering, and you could go a couple ways with this, would you tell me what you heard me say? Or you, and that goes down one path. Or you could say, would you tell me if you would be willing to clean up the kitchen now so I can prepare dinner for the family? Mm-hmm. So you don't blame the other person. You certainly hold them accountable. You tell them what your needs are. Or you might say to them, would you tell me what I want to understand. I have a need for understanding because I thought we had this agreement about you cleaning up the kitchen and, and I noticed it's not done and I, I'm confused. I wonder if you might tell me uh, more information about why it's not done. Well, you know, my little sister fell and broke her arm and I took her to the hospital and now she's back and resting upstairs. You might have one reaction or I totally forgot. You might have another one or I didn't want to do it. You might have a third one. You know what I'm saying? So that's another way that you might you might approach it. That's but great. It's observation. Go ahead. It's an, obs- it's an observation. It's a feeling. It's a need, and it's this should be in 25 words or less. And it is a concrete request for a doable that we could measure that you had done it. So if you say, can you meet on Tuesday, I don't know, well, would you be willing to tell me when you might be able to, when you might know if you can meet on Tuesday? Will you know by Monday at 5 o'clock? Okay, thank you. <laughs> That's great. That's really efficient. <laughs> and the funny thing is I think you did take an example out of my life with the kitchen and the dishes. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm psychic. You can't, you can't I know. save me. When you started talking, I thought, oh, my God, did I give her an example? (laughs) That's funny. You know, we don't have that much time left, and I wonder, um, I do want to ask you about upcoming stuff at the end, but I did have one more question that I wanted to ask before we got to that. If it runs over by a few minutes, are you okay with that, or should we just jump to the final question? Well, let's try. Let's try what you like to do. Ask me a question, and then we'll see. I'll try to be. I'll try to bring okay. more past a turn in my answer. Okay. Okay. Um, I just wanted to, with relax and renew your other book, one of your other books, um, you talk about the difference between rest and sleep, and I wondered if you could just talk about that a little bit and what is the importance of, of rest as opposed to sleep. All right. Um, I'm not a physiologist, I'm an anatomist, but I hang out with physiologists, and I actually hang out with a friend who's a physiologist, sleep researcher. Sleep and and, uh, rest are on the same side of the brainwave continuum. I mean, they're both quiescent states, but a a physiologist has hooked you up to the proper recording devices, machines, you know, leads onto you, could could look at your brainwaves and say, that person's in sleep and that person's in rest. They're, They're different. And so... Human beings need both because you can sleep and not and wake up not rested. 
Mm-hmm. And I think one of the causes of insomnia is people don't have good sleep hygiene. They don't they don't calm down and rest before bed. They're looking at the TV or the computer screens, you know, all the light stimulation. They're not having a quiet time, restful time before they go to sleep, and it makes it harder. And people used to rest all the time. In, in civilized countries, they take siestas every day. Uh, but people used to come home. My mother went home for lunch every day. She was in a little country town she used to, in Texas, and she used to go home for lunch every day, and her father and brothers would come, big brothers, older brothers would come in from the, working in the farm and then have lunch uh, and then lie down on the floor by the fan and put their hat over their face and take a 20-minute shavasana, but they didn't call it that. Uh, people uh-huh. have rested always. It's very healthy to rest, and if you rest well, then you sleep better. It's not either or. And our culture is so sleep-deprived and so rest-deprived, I want everyone to lie on the floor and cover up their eyes and rest for 20 minutes every day, and it will change the world. It will certainly change your world. My children used to say to me when they were growing up, Mom, you need to go up to the yoga room and shavasana yourself. You know, shavasana, <laughs> suppose it became a verb. You're acting like a brat, go shavasana yourself. Excuse me, I'm going to interrupt you for one second. I just Please. want to tell anyone who's listening that if this cuts off, it will still record the whole program. So if you miss a minute or two because we run over, you can go back to the archive and listen to it within like 20 minutes after the show is over. So, okay, please go ahead. Sorry about that. No, that's fine. No, I, I, I'm done. It's just they are distinct. They are both necessary, and they're both underutilized in our culture. And the effects of not enough rest and not enough sleep on our health, on our physical health, mental health, emotional health, and relationships cannot be overestimated. There is nothing in your life or my life or our life that wouldn't be better if we were more rested. Nothing. Uh, Everything. Our digestion, our relationships, our happiness index, everything. You name it. Um, It's so true. The the whole world would be different, and I really wish that they would teach these things in school as part of the regular curriculum. Um, I just, it's so important. Um, One of the things that I thought was so interesting in the book is that you said we have a tendency to go from we're just working and then we crash, and there's no rest in between. And I thought, oh, my God, I've been doing that. You know, yeah. and you don't yeah. realize that you get into the habit. Lie down and put your feet up on the couch and just rest for a while. So well, your last thing that you would your... like to do now? Okay, great. So just in closing, I'd like to know if you have anything that you're working on now that you'd like to tell us about, and also if you have any events or publications coming up that you'd like to announce or if you want to direct people to your website. Just how Let's they can just find out the... Let's do the website, which is just my name, judithlasseter.com. That has everything I do on there. And I also post on Twitter, Judith Yoga. I I post on my Facebook. I post uh, on Twitter and Facebook, and I have my website, judithlasseter.com. I've got two or three books in the the wings on yoga, um, but I'd like to not reveal exactly what they are yet so that everyone can be whipped up into a frenzy of excitement about them. <laughs> they're in the wings. They're they're, they're in the wings. And nothing nothing imminent, but, you know, I am writing more books because I like to write books. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. It's been a delight talking to you and hearing your stories. Thank you so much for including 
me and your program, and I think what you do is God's work. And I'm so glad that you are disseminating ideas uh, about consciousness and how we can live our best and most wonderful life. Um, And I'd like to end, if I may, with how I end every class I teach with this saying, may we live like the lotus at home in the muddy water. Mm. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. Namaste. Namaste.